Kevin Mondro here, Coach Dro, D-R-O. Welcome back to the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast, the podcast where we advocate coaches, help young coaches learn from the coaches telling these stories. Today, we are talking to Coach Ricky Yawn. Ricky is the current head coach at Concordia University. Concordia is an NAIA school located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Coach Ricky is entering year nine as the head coach at Concordia. This product of Wheeling, West Virginia shares right away how Wheeling, West Virginia and the state of West Virginia is a true hotbed for coaches. Coach Yon has been a head coach since he was 28. And when did Ricky learn that he wanted to be a head coach? Senior year of high school, on the way home from team camp at Xavier University in a McDonald's drive through with his teammates, with this incredible high school coach, Coach Dave Wojcik, at his side, Ricky knew at that very moment that he had to be a coach. Wait till you hear the impact that Coach Wojcik made on young Coach Jan's life. And this goal of making the same lasting impact is what drives Coach Jan daily. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening. Remember, we are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Please keep telling your coaching friends about this podcast, the bigger impact we can make with younger coaches. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Enough of Coach Dro. Let's get to Coach Ricky Yawn and tell his story. Real quick, before Coach Yawn's story, I need to tell you about my affiliate partner that I've been supporting since episode one. That friend, Desmond Ferguson, the owner of Moneyball Sportswear. Check out MoneyballSportswear.com. Let me tell you about the gear that Moneyball produces. Men's, women's, boys, and girls sports attire, hoodies, sweatshirts, t-shirts, shorts, you name it, Moneyball has it. Get all your winter gear. I said it. Winter gear here. ASAP. Truly, what are you waiting for? If you are a high school and or AAU coach and you need a new set of uniforms, please reach out to Moneyball. Uniforms that Desmond and his team create are simply spectacular. Go to MoneyballSportswear.com, shop away, enter the promo code DRO, D-R-O, in the coupon checkout. Grow with us. Moneyball, the only way to ball. Ricky, why do you coach? You know, not to get super deep on, on the first question, but, you know, the, the real simple and short answer is I, I've got, I got into coaching because my high school and college coaches changed, you know, my life without, you know, going, going a ton into it. I, I was definitely a kid that was headed down the wrong path. And I, you know, I had great parents. It wasn't like I you know didn't have any leadership or guidance at home, but I think as a lot of us see in coaching, sometimes there's kids that come from that, like they have a great family, but they're just, you know, they're not kind of doing the right things. And, and sometimes it's a voice outside of their home that, that can kind of, you know, change their direction a little bit. And, um, you know, for my for me, my my high school coach in particular, but my college coach as well. You know, they they really helped me in some ways that that my parents couldn't. And you know, so I had thought about doing some other things. I actually at one point was studying to uh, to maybe go to medical school. I took the uh, the MCATs and, and pretty quickly got the results and found out I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor. And so I can remember, you know, kind of clear as day. Even though I tried to do some other things in college, I'm like 16 years old. It's going into my senior year, and my high school coach. Uh, Dave Wojcik that, that went on to become a Division One head coach it was just a, a tremendous, tremendous coach, and um, he had taken us down to the, the Xavier team camp back when you know Skip Prosser was the head coach there. It was something we did every year since Skip had coached at our high school, and um, we're on the way back. We stopped at a McDonald's uh, drive-through not far, you know, not far from where where I had grown up at, and I, you know, I don't know really what it was. I don't even think I was really thinking all that deep, and something just kind of dawned on me as we were getting our food to the drive-through of like, man, I, I want to do this. Like I want to be around basketball all the time. I want to be around guys, talk basketball, you know, be, be an influence in their life. You know, I didn't at that time had no idea the, you know, the business or the career side of it. I had no idea what, what the path would look like to get there, but you know, I just can remember very clearly having that epiphany of like, man, this is, this is what I want to do with my life. And now I just got to figure out how to do that. That's really cool. Let's talk about Wheeling, West Virginia. You played at Wheeling Central High School and Wheeling Jesuit University. So the amount of a coach is associated with your high school and your college is pretty incredible. You just mentioned Coach Prosser, mentioned Coach Wojcik, his brother, and then Coach Beeline with, with Wheeling Jesuit. Yeah. What is so special about this city? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely wish I knew. I, you know, I think there's maybe a couple of things. Even you know, some other guys I, I'd probably be remiss not to mention from there, like Skip's son. 
Mark, who was a couple years ahead of me in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now the head coach at, at Winthrop, and, and Dino Gaudio that, that was with Skip yep. kind of all along, and, and also was a head coach uh, two Division One schools, including Wake Forest, and then like, even my college coach, Jada Fruscio. Uh, he worked for Jim O'Brien way back in the 80s. Jim O'Brien was the head coach at, uh, and there's a couple of Jim O'Briens in coaching, but uh, the Jim O'Brien that coached the uh, AI 76ers and the uh, uh, Celtics teams with Paul Pierce kind of back in the late 90s or 2000s. He was the head coach at Wheeling Jesuit way back in the 80s. And then the year after I graduated, Jay actually went to work with, with Coach O'Brien uh, when he was the head coach at the Pacers at that point in time and spent five years in the NBA. And you, have, you know, the list goes on and on with then some other guys that are way less high profile like myself, or, you know, Division One, some Division One assistants, and Division Two, three head coaches and all that. So it is really remarkable, you know, and, and it's just, you know, Wheeling is a, is a place that is really blue collar. It's a tight knit community. Uh, the high school that I went to, you know, it, it, it's basketball in West Virginia is relatively small. So it's not like winning a state championship there is, is quite like what it might be of doing it in Ohio or Indiana. Uh, but the high school that I went to is actually uh, tied for winning the most uh, state championships of any, any high school in the country. I believe that number is 33 wow. and, uh, and, and tied with another school. And, and it includes kind of back in the 60s when public and private were, were separated. So, you know, I think it's like 12 true state championships and then like 21 Catholic state championships, but but nonetheless, you know, I think even regardless of maybe the level or the competition not being as high, I think there's just something to be said for. There's just been a whole lot of people that have gone through that community and school that grew up and and really didn't know anything else other than winning. Um, and I, you know, there's some cliches like success breeds success, and so I think there's just been a lot of people that have gone through there and maybe weren't as talented or weren't as good as you probably think you are when you're in that, you know, big fish in a really small pond. But then you go out and you you try to chase some other opportunities and and try to see if, you know, you're able to duplicate that success somewhere else. So I I think that's probably part of it is just that that success with our our school in general and and community in general. But like even even just West Virginia in general, you know, there's coaches like Nick Saban, uh, Lou Holtz, Jimbo Fisher, Mark D'Antoni are are all West Virginia natives. And um, I know when I was listening to a podcast with with Coach Emenizer and, and, and no, I think no one would argue that you know in high school basketball, Indiana is you know they're, they're definitely king when it comes to that. But I think one of the unique things with West Virginia is that there's no pro teams in the entire state. There's only one major Division One university, West Virginia University, and so you know again, it's not maybe to the level of you know ten and twelve thousand people in the stands like it can be for Indiana high school basketball. But there is a little bit of that element where you know in, in a lot of those towns in West Virginia where I grew up, it's like. You know, you're, you got to go two, three, four hours to, to get to a professional or a major college sporting event. And so for a lot of those people in that town, you know, that game on Friday night, whether it's high school, basketball, football, whatever it is, that that's the biggest show in town. Those are, you know, those, in some cases, those might be the best athletes, best coaches that, that a lot of those people ever see play in person. And so I think, you know, again, it's another one of those just kind of contributing factors where, you know, on one hand, you, you, you kind of learn a little bit about winning. And, and on the other hand, you get, you know, you, you, there's those cliches, you know, kind of make the big time where you are. And, and there's a lot of places in West Virginia where, you know, if you're from the outside and you get dropped in there, you're like, man, you guys think this is big time? Like, you, <laughs> you think this is high level? Mm-hmm. Um, but for the people there, you know, it, it, it is. And, and I think, again, there's just something to be said for that, that once you develop kind of that confidence and, and see yourself have some success, um, sometimes you can go out and, and do some special things when, when then you are tested against, you know, maybe some higher level teams, coaches, whatever it might be. You know, I want to circle back to when you said, why do you coach? And I loved your answer. And with Coach Wojcik, like I see this a lot with my son. He's six that it seems to me when I take him to his basketball, you know, he started basketball at the YMCA or golf instructor. Even tonight he did a drum lesson. He seems to listen to the teachers or the coaches or even his kindergarten teacher a little mm-hmm. bit differently than me. <laughs> and it's just so interesting that <laughs> you said that at the start. And I now it kind of putting it all together, like I understand you you probably were a great, respectable young man, but you know, maybe, maybe temptations, you know, you were moving in a different direction and, and it's just pretty incredible when you think about your initial, you know, response that coach Wojcik, you know, put you on that correct path. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it, you know, it, it is not something to say just to say, and, you know, I try not to over, you know, make it more dramatic than it needs to be, but you know, there's no question. And, and it was really a serendipitous thing. You know, he had been uh, a division one assistant at, at a couple of different places prior to coming back there and going into my senior year, 
they had decided to make a coaching change. He had come back the year before and it, it kind of been the athletic director and dean of students. And, and looking back now, I think pretty much everybody in the community knew that, that that writing was on the wall, that that's why he came back that year was that he was going to become the coach next year. But, you know, we're 15 years old. We, you know, we're not really thinking about coaches or ADs. We're just, you know, with our friends having fun. And, uh, you know, he, he took over. And I, I mean, I can remember a couple of different things. And um, there's some of this that I think some of the, the quirks and things that I've, I've, I've definitely taken with me from that. But there's some other things where I'm probably not not quite as intense as he is. Very few people are as, as intense as, as the Wojcik brothers. But for sure, um, you know, the, I mean, the day he took over, you know, the next day I go to school and, you know, he I, I, I would drink like Dr. Peppers all the time, have a, have a soda at lunch. And he comes over, throws the soda away and he <laughs> like bought me like a bottle of water or juice or something. And he's like, I'm only doing this once. You're never drinking a soda again for lunch. And <laughs> I was just like, OK, like I, I don't feel like getting my drink, you know, drink thrown away every day. I'll, I'll drink, you know, drink a water. And he just always kind of had, you know, kind of had that ability where, you know, he could really demand things from you. You, you kind of knew it, but you kind of didn't. You just you just you just went along with it. And, and obviously, as I mentioned before, just the respect level. I mean, he had, he had won a state championship at a player at our school. And we all knew the success that he and his brother had as both players and coaches at the division one level. And you, you wake up and you're like, wow, this this high level guy is my coach. Like I, I I better listen to, you know, to what he had to say and, and what he could help me do. And, and yeah, so again, I mean, I, I really only had him for nine months or whatever as a coach. And I mean, he, you know, he made a lifetime impact on me for sure. And I don't know that I've done that with any guys yet, but, but that's definitely a motivating, you know, force for me in my coaching is like, man, if there's just one or two guys that, that I can be their coach logic for that, that would be a, you know, an awesome way to, you know, to kind of repay that. So let's talk about you now as the coach, you are entering year nine as the head coach at Concordia University in Ann Arbor. But I want to go back to 2008. You were both a player and a coach in England at the same time. How in the <laughs> world was this experience? You know, it was um, it was short-lived. I'll <laughs> say that. It was, uh, you know, like I think a lot of the European kind of horror stories you hear about. It was, you know, I had I graduated from college and, and it, it had, you know, had an, a pretty good career and wanted to always play. But, I, you know, I, I was one of those guys. I never had any major injuries like ACLs or broken bones, but just really was banged up, you know, by, by the end of my, my college career and, and didn't feel like my body could play right away. So I, I coached for a year because I mentioned I always wanted to coach. And, uh, and I just, like a lot of guys have, I just, you know, still had that itch to play. So kind of towards, towards the end of that season that I coached at Division three school was like, you know, maybe, maybe I'll try to play again, make a little run at this. So I was kind of just at the beginning of like, you know, YouTube and being able to actually send video through the internet, not having to like mail someone a DVD or VHS mm -hmm. in the mail. And so I, you know, kind of got on the internet, tried to, you know, tried to market myself a little bit and got a little interest here and there and, and ended up, you know, having the opportunity to go play for this team in England. And um, I was there for a couple of months and, you know, didn't really get paid what I was supposed to. And again, I think just as a, as a unfortunately kind of all too common, uh, you know, situation that, that can happen to some guys, but it was a great experience. And I got to, you know, got to, got to travel the you know world a little bit and see some different countries and definitely see basketball played in, in different you know environments, different, different ways of playing the game. You know, I would, I, I was, you know, a player coach more so kind of in the sense where like we had a coach for the team, um, but like, you know, especially at that level in England, you know, he had another job. And so there might be days where we'd show up to practice and he'd be running late or might not be there. And, you know, so my role was kind of as, you know, again, since I had coached a little bit in, in college already and you know, was a little bit more accomplished player, it's like, I'd be, okay, hey, here's this drill we're going to do. Let's set it up. We'll do this. And then it's like, I'm going through the drill and then I'm out of breath, like you know, leading the next drill. But, but fortunately it wasn't, it wasn't kind of like, you know, the maybe the you know, 60s NBA or whatever of uh, right. I, I didn't have to ever serve as like player coach for an actual game or anything <laughs> okay. like that and, and, and be subbing myself in and out and be like, hey, you you know, you're coming out. So I play now. But um, but yeah, it was it was a neat experience. And, you know, even though it kind of didn't work out there, I uh, I finished that year playing uh, for a team in Buffalo, New York, and, and I met my, I met my wife there. So, mm. um, you know, experience in England wasn't the best, but the choice to go back and play, which you know, in a roundabout way led me led me to Buffalo where I met my wife, you know, certainly um, was was great grateful for, you know, the, like kind of always we'll, we'll say within our program a little bit is, you know, you, you, we're all going to be thankful for the wins, but, you know, sometimes we got to find some ways to, you know, appreciate and embrace the losses and, and see what, you know, blessings maybe come from those. And, and that was definitely an example of that for me. Time for a quick 30 second timeout, Coach Yawn. Getting this podcast to you is all because of my friends at Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so many more. 
You'll also get a great looking podcast website. They provide audio players that you can drop into other websites. They give detailed analytics to see how people are listening. To start your own podcast, follow the link in my show notes. Let Buzzsprout know that I sent you. You'll get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And this also helps support my show. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. You just mentioned Noel Emenheiser and Clint Pleasant, two great coaches in your league. You're third. I mean, obviously, tremendous NAIA basketball in the state of Michigan. But your Division One experience at Cornell, Longwood, George Mason, how did these experiences prepare you to become a head coach? Well, you know, I, I think another one of those cliches, I think one of the things I learned really, really quick is that, um, number one, I wasn't ready. Um, and, and number two, that it was really a lot easier to think that I was and to think I had all the answers and, and that, oh, yeah, I'm ready, you know, ready to take over and, and really quickly learned that having that mindset thinking that was was a lot different than than actually being prepared to do it but from those stops as you mentioned I mean you know even though I, I definitely wasn't as ready as I thought I was I was, I was really fortunate that um, the one thing looking back on it was that all of those coaches gave me way more opportunities than I deserved they gave me way more responsibilities than than I was ready for and you know so by the time I was 28 when I was taking over here at, at Concordia you know I had had roles on staff where I was in charge of team travel at one place and you know, I had been a you know a, not necessarily a lead recruiter but had done a lot of recruiting at another school and I had ran you know run the skill groups and uh, had done scouting reports and and done all those things and and I think you know the, again the thing that probably was was pretty quickly clear to me was you know I wasn't really great at any one of those things but I did learn that as a head coach and especially at this level you, you have to be able to do all those jobs like you just can't really get away with hey I'm I'm just a recruiter I'm I'm just a you know great scout coach but I you know I don't really teach the game that well or or, or whatever it might be and so I think while I had a lot of areas that I needed to improve at I, I at least had a pretty decent foundation of a lot of those different things that that went into being a coach and I, and I think that helped me have a pretty broad skill set where again I, you know maybe a little like a, a jack of all trades master of none guy at, at that point in time but um, you know I was also really spoiled that like those schools you mentioned I mean I worked for Coach Laranega that a couple of years after I worked for him became the Division One National Coach of the Year when he was at Miami and, and you know the two other coaches I worked for Bill Courtney and, and Mike Gillian I mean those are people would tell me that all the time they're like you have no idea how lucky you've been to, to work for three people that are just as great of, of human beings as those guys are because because there's a lot of us that, you know, there's a lot of great coaches out there, but, you know, there's also a lot of times where you end up working for somebody that, you know, can really make your work-life balance difficult or, you know, kind of be too demanding, too degrading, whatever it might be. And so that was another thing where I think I, I was definitely really prepared where because I had worked for guys that really valued, I think, the right things that when I then was in charge of someone else's schedule or setting expectations within a staff or whatever, that you know, I tried to do those same things of, you know, having high expectations, but, but doing it in a way that's you know respectful of of everybody within the program. Ricky, what's your process in planning a practice? So I'm I'm a big planner, good, bad, or indifferent. I I, uh, I plan everything. I mean, you know, my my wife will always uh, find a way to you know sneak in a little jab at me. I mean, even even like when we went on our honeymoon, I and mean, we had like a, a coach's travel itinerary of like here's where <laughs> we're going to go each day, here's what time we should try to eat, and and all of that. And um and it's a blessing and a curse at times because I think in, in coaching you definitely do need to have a plan. You definitely need to be able to set a vision of where where you're going. Uh, but this is a very you know this this career requires a lot of flexibility and the ability to adapt and adjust on the fly. So I would, I would say I think the two ways I kind of look at it is you know in the preseason before we started playing any games each year I try to evaluate what are you know what are maybe four or five things offensively four or five defensively four or five things defensively based on our personnel that year, based on what we did well the year before, based on what we think we need to do well this year. What are those kind of four or five big ticket items that we need to have accomplished before we head into the first game and, and that ideally are going to be our identity throughout the season? And then I kind of break it down within there. Okay, here's, I, I try to plan at that part of the year. Uh, I try to plan practices about a, in, in like a week block. 
So, you know, here's this week of practice. Here's where we were last week. Here's where we need to get to by the end of the week. What, what are those, whether it's drills, scrimmage segments, you know, what, what things do we need to incorporate this week to kind of stay on track to, to be moving towards that kind of constantly moving finish line. And then uh, another thing that, you know, I think goes into that at our level in particular is, you know, we, we have such a constantly changing practice time. I mean, one day we might be at 6 a.m. and the next day we're at 8 at night. And that's another reason we're, we're pre- planning practices kind of on a week week uh, block here helps is if, you know, if, if I don't look far enough ahead to realize, hey, on Wednesday, we've got four guys in night class. So Wednesday, the way you're planning it out might be a great day that we're going to install a couple offensive sets or we're going to teach something new. But you got four really key guys that aren't going to be there. Then then you better either change that to Tuesday or Thursday. And and uh, so that's, that's, again, another one of those things I just kind of learned a little bit the hard way uh, being here in terms of, you know, planning out our practices. But then in, in season, I, I really just kind of look at two things. And, and our schedule gets pretty routine like it is right now. We're pretty much a Wednesday-Saturday conference game schedule. And so on those two days we have in between practice or in between games for practice, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to look at what do we need to work on? What are, you know, what are areas that, that we're not doing well that we need to improve, that we need to focus on? And then based on our opponents, what do we need to do to win? In the next game and you know how much of those get balanced each day obviously can change a little bit uh, week to week or game to game but you know that that's really kind of my main plan I guess you will for practice is you know especially at this time of year for us what do we need to do and, and for our opponents what do we need to do to win the game so you mentioned young coach taking over a program I've always been fascinated how a head coach approaches a timeout what's your process what do you try to accomplish in a timeout yeah if I'll try to give my best at this if I you know if I was going to give myself a couple areas of, of weakness or I guess I should say if I was going to limit myself to only naming a few areas of weakness I think timeouts were one especially early on that I that I really struggled with and I think you were kind of just mentioning and I know when I was an assistant that, that was one of those things where people would use that phrase of like oh you know a guy's going to be a new head coach he's, he's never even called a timeout before I'm like what's so hard about it you <laughs> signal to the ref timeout and the team comes over and, and then as you you know you, you were much more aware of as me there's there's a lot more that, that's going into it and one of uh you know I think one of the things that helped me maybe in proven that area recently is one of our assistant coaches is Randy Swoverlin. He's a, he's a longtime high school coach in the area. He's been a high school coach or was a high school coach, I think for close to 40 years. And, you know, he, he's like my coach. I mean, he, he coaches me and he's always giving me, Hey, you, you talk too much here. You didn't deliver this message the way you thought here. You, you know, you spent two minutes going over the offensive action here, but I don't think the guys got it or, you know, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, in timeouts, he, he mentioned pretty early on of like, Hey, you're spending way too much time just rehashing what went wrong or what just happened, and and he's really helped me get better at focusing on you know you, you need to give the guys what do we need to do next you know whether that's that's great that we just did play great but how do we keep playing great or yeah we didn't play that great now what do we need to change what offensive set can we run to to get a score you know what what do we need to change defensively or what are we not doing defensively that we need to focus on and you know I think for me if I'm if I'm calling a timeout I think there's usually a couple of reasons. And two of those main ones are we either need to calm down, you know, things have gotten away from us and, and we're just really too hectic and, and playing too crazy. And it's like, all right, we need to taunt the time out and we just need to get the guys settled down. Like, hey, take a breath, relax. Let's think about what we need to do. And then there's other times where guys aren't playing hard enough. You know, we're just kind of jogging back in transition or whatever it is. And, and we've got to go the other way and, and get wound up. And then, you know, really, I think that only other time is we need a basket. We've been outscored. It's an 8-0 run by the opponent. The game's getting away from us. Like, we need to drop a set here and, and get a timeout. And so I think the thing that I've, with, with that guidance from Coach Wolverine, the thing I've really tried to have our timeouts be about now is, you know, how do you bring everybody present? I think so much, again, like I would be guilty of at times at a timeout. The players are thinking about what just happened, what just went wrong, what just went well. Or if especially and it's late in the game and there's three minutes left, Guys aren't thinking about this next possession. They're thinking about, oh, we're we're up ten. We're going to win the game, or we're down five. How are we gonna How are we going to win the game? And so, whichever of those scenarios it is, you know, getting getting more energy going, calming ourselves down, or, or we just simply kind of need a score. I try to you know do things in a way in the timeout that gets everybody focused on, hey, this this next possession, whether we're on offense or defense, this is what we need to do. And I and I know you, you know you, you referenced uh, Coach Emenheiser, and you know I love the way he talks about you know the 
you know, the, uh, the flywheel and just how you can take a, any moment in the game and, and start building some momentum. And, and we don't, you know, we don't articulate it nearly as well as he does. But at our timeout, I think that's what we're trying to do is, hey, if we've already got momentum going, what do we need to do on this next possession to not lose it? And if things are going, you know, not going our way, what's that one thing we need to do right now to get a stop, to get a score? And then maybe that's going to make that next possession that much easier for us. You mentioned Coach Randy, you know, obviously 400 wins, Dexter High School staple in the Ann Arbor community. But there's two things I love about that. A, you remove your ego (laughs) and you listen to him and take his advice. And then B, that he's fearless to give you honest suggestions and truth. I think that's beautiful there. There's a lot right in there that a lot of coaches, I don't know, they might not, they, it might not be that, that fluid on a lot of different ends. So I, I, that's really, really cool to hear that you accept this coaching and then he's so willing to be so honest with you and kind of check his ego at the door and be like, man, if he doesn't like it, so what? I'm going to tell him. I think that's awesome. That's, that's true high level coaching right there. And that's really cool. You know, the dynamics of your staff that, that, goes on that's big time stuff that's awesome thank you yeah yeah like i said we're super fortunate to have him and and uh, his his phrase almost every time he's like he's like do you want me to be blunt and i'm like that's what you're here for you know (laughs) tell me me what you got and i would quickly say you know again if if you had some of the coaches i had played for and and how demanding they were that's all kind of say with them sometimes like believe me there is nothing you could say like if i didn't get my feelings hurt with with some of the coaches i played for there's nothing you're going to say about how bad of a job you think i'm doing coaching or what i'm doing wrong that's going to hurt my feeling you know i've just always had the mentality of i'm doing something wrong i'd much rather know about it as much as maybe i'm like oh okay i didn't know it was that bad but how do we fix it Mm. um as opposed to going through life thinking you're doing a great job and and it turns out you're not convert contain contest rebound break down these four areas for me yeah you know i got i got the main uh the main part of that i I think you know in coaching we all say we steal you know we steal a lot and I, i definitely stole this one so i believe his name is is uh brennan shingleton but uh i saw him speak when they, they had just won the NAI National Championship and probably was four or five years ago, 16, 17, 18, something like that. And uh, I think it, think it might have been part of the NABC stuff. But anyway, you know, he, he gave a presentation and, and their defensive philosophy was the contain and contest defense. And, you know, I, I love the simplicity of that. I know, you know, I know you mentioned Coach uh, Coach Pleasant. I know he talked about that on, on the podcast, uh, you know, last week that, you know, that's our job as coaches. How do we take something that is so complex and, and make it so simple? And, you know, there's a there's a thousand things that we have to do on defense. How are you going to close out? How are you going to deny? Are you going to be a gap team? You know, how, how are you going to, you know, do you force the ball middle? Do you do it sideline? You know, all these different things. And at the end of the day, you know, I think half court defense is like you contain the ball. You don't let guys drive by you and you don't let guys shoot open shot. You know, there's obviously, spent, you know, some teaching that needs to go into to that. But so I, I just really like that. It really resonated with me. And, you know, I guess leave it to me to make it a little more complicated and not keep it as simple as just two words of containing contest but we had always struggled rebounding the ball and and we went through a stretch especially around this time when I came across this concept where we actually were a pretty good like half court defensive team and our field goal percentage defensive numbers wouldn't terrible but our points per possession would be really bad because we would just get beat up on the boards all the time and and we've traditionally been a pretty small team Uh and so we felt like it wouldn't be wouldn't be completely accurate to tell the guys hey we just need to keep it out of the middle we just need to contest shots and we'll be fine because we had been doing that okay so so we added the rebounding part of it and then um and we've you know we don't do it as much now but at that time we really pressed a lot and even if it wasn't the press aspect of it of, of kind of converting after a made basket and getting into our press uh, because we pushed the ball so much on offense and, and we really try to emphasize getting a score before the defense is set you know conversely we had always really emphasized transition defense and felt like hey if we can get back and play five against five instead of being three against four in transition uh, we think we have a better chance to get a stop. And so we played around with the words a little bit to try to get it to maybe flow and be something that guys could remember. And again, not have 50,000 things that they're trying to remember. But, you know, hey, the defensive possession pretty much goes like this. We gave the ball up, whether it's a turnover, whether it's a made basket, a miss, whatever. And once we're no longer on it, on on offense, we need to convert and play defense. As we're playing defense, we need to keep the ball in front. We need to contain, keep it out of the middle. Um, we need to, as especially guys that are capable of making shots, they can't be wide open ones, we've got to contest 
contest them. And then the shot goes up and we, you know, we got to get the ball and rebound. And if we force a missed shot and we get a rebound, you don't really get much more of a successful defensive possession than that. So that was, that was kind of how we, you know, we went into that. It obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're not like uh, the nation's leading defense by, by any uh, stretch, but, but it's been a, been a way for us to have, have a tool to, to try to help our guys understand what we're looking for on a defensive possession. What is celebrate your teammate and champion your role? I, I like that, that those are, are two, uh, two, two, I guess, quotes you could say that, that you picked because, you know, we're without going deep in the weeds, but we're, uh, you know, we're going through this a little bit right now as a team. And, uh, you know, I, I always look at it like there's, there's two, you know, almost two sides to the same coin. And it, you know, I think as competitors, every guy on the team wants a role a little bit bigger than they have. And, and we sometimes use the phrase like, or, or the, I guess the, the analogy that, you know, if you're, if you're the last guy, we have a varsity and JV team here. And if you're the last guy in the varsity rotation, you, you kind of tell yourself, Hey, if, if I was starting for the JV team, I'd be happy. You know, I don't need to be a varsity guy. I just need to, to start on the JV team. And then you go to that guy that, that is starting on the JV team. He's like, well, I, I just need to be a, a varsity player. Like I don't, I don't have to play. I just want to be on the team. And it just, and it just keeps going from there. And, you know, and, and then you get all the way up to, okay, here's, here's a guy that's a all conference or, or all American or whatever it is. And he plays 36 minutes a game. And he wants to play 38 and he wants to get two more shots a game. And uh, he wants to be first team all American instead of second team all American. And, and there's a healthy level to that. You know, we, we should all, um, you know, I, I use myself as an example with the guys of like, Hey, I, I love where I'm at right now. And I think that's, you know, that's the champion your role part. Like I love being the head coach at Concordia. And if I coach here for the next 40 years, I'll be completely content with that. But, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say, Hey, if, you know, if, if Michigan called tomorrow and said, Hey, we want to offer you a $5 million a year for a six year contract and you'd be on TV and coach, you know, coach some of the best players in the world. Are you interested? I'd be lying if I didn't, <laughs> didn't say I wanted that. And so, you know, we, we try to use that phrase champion your role to, you know, recognize like, Hey, you, you know, you need to be great in the role you're at. And then we always usually will add kind of onto that, but never settle. And so we, you know, we try to preach to both sides of that of, you know, this is your role right now. If, if you're only going to be content with the next role or more minutes or more playing time, you'll, you'll never be fulfilled. You'll never, you know, you'll never appreciate that. But if you can really just love the role you have right now while still working for the next one and, and putting a lot of effort into that, but ultimately settling at the place of, you know, if I don't, if I'm the sixth man right now and I don't start a game this season, but I work really hard at it and I work to be the best sixth man I can be for the team, then I'm good with that. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm accepting of that. And then the celebrate your teammate part again is, is that kind of other side of it of, of kind of always recognizing like, you know, the, I think seasons and, and players roles are like, you know, they're these kind of like ships passing in the night, if you will, that as, as one guy goes from, Hey, you, you were a guy that played 10 minutes a game off the bench. Now you're one of our core starters. Then usually that means somebody else was a starter and, and, and now they're coming out of the lineup and, and they're going to be a guy coming off the bench. And, and so we just try to always call attention to that, that, you know, yes, as, as, you know, as something maybe doesn't go your way, you don't play as much as you would like a given night or, or your role isn't exactly what it would you what it would be right now to, to recognize that you've got some teammates on, on your team that uh, things are going great for. And so when that guy makes a big shot or, you know, that guy that maybe didn't play as much gets a chance to play and he comes in and has a, you know, double figure scoring game or grabs seven rebounds and now he's playing more than he was previously, you know, are are you caught up in how that affects you that, oh man, that guy I was in competition for, he, he took my spot. Like he's going to be the first guard off the bench and I'm not going to play now. Or can you just be genuinely happy for him? And neither of those things are, are easy by, by any stretch, but you know, those are, those are a couple of the phrases and quotes that we use from time to time to just try to channel that the best, you know, the best that we can, that, you know, you need to work really hard. You need to find some level of acceptance in where you're at right now. Your maybe lack of success doesn't have to mean that you can't be happy for, for success that a teammate is having. What is integrity to you? So it's, it's one of our five core values. Um, we, you know, we have five of them, faith, selfless, toughness, passion, and, and integrity, I think in a lot of ways is maybe the most important one for me. I mean, it's definitely a, a big word for me. You know, we, we define it as doing, you know, doing what's right, even, and especially when no one else is, is watching. And, and we try to always do two things with our core values. We try to define them, you know, kind of that way. Um, like we have a you know, working definition, especially with toughness, but you know, integrity, we define it that way. And then we also try to give them some, you know, we call them like accountability steps, but basically like what is, you know, okay, you, you read it, you know, the definition, this is how we're defining it. But then what does that look like in everyday life? What does that look like on our team? And you know, so some of those examples we're always pointing to when it comes to integrity and, and, and doing the right thing, you know, even when no one is looking is, you know, are you doing every web rep in the weight room? You know, the strength coach isn't there counting your reps. Every teammate isn't there counting your reps. If it's four sets of 10, are you doing four sets of 10? Or are you doing three sets of seven? 
in and you know one set of six. You know we have a we have a study hall system here for for uh, underclassmen or freshmen and, and for any upperclassmen that are below a certain GPA. And we try to make it we try to do it in a way where it's not overly handheld. I guess you could say that uh, guys have to check in. There's a way that they check in, but you know myself or assistants are not there monitoring and supervising it every minute that they're there. We'll come over from time to time to check in and make sure guys are there when they say they're there and they're actually studying. But you know when you're in study hall, are are you actually studying or are you on your phone, you know, doing things on social media or whatever else? And the part that, you know, the part that we always call attention to kind of towards the end of that, that, that I've really grown to love about just, I think the reality of integrity is that, you know, while integrity is, you know, a lot of times no one might see it when you're doing it right in the moment. You know, if you're going and getting shots up late at night, no one might know you're doing that, um, but it's the right thing to do. And then the really cool part is at some point, if you are doing the right thing, then everyone will find out about it. You know, you've become a better player. You're a better student. And the inverse of that is true also. You know, if everybody else on the team has been lifting for six months and getting all their reps in and you've been cheating in the weight room, when everybody else's max reps have gone up and we test out and yours haven't, again, no one no one saw the specific time that, that you didn't do the right thing. That shows up. And so I think I think that's one of those really, you know, really cool things where in the moment no one might know, but there's you know, there's one of those basketball sayings like, you know, there, there comes a time where a winner will ask what you did all summer. And I, I think that's kind of, you know, integrity, you know, lived out. You've touched on toughness now twice. You said you had a working definition of toughness. What's toughness to you? So we talk about it. We, we say there's a what, how, and, and when. You know, are you doing what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, when it needs to be done? And, and again, we'll, we'll use some uh, some different examples where, you know, I've, I've kind of been like, let's say, uh, let's say defense, right? And it's, um, you know, there's a what component of maybe communication. You know, you need to call out the ball screen coverage, but just calling out the coverage may not matter. You know, the how and the when also matter. So if you just kind of say, oh, screen left, screen left, and no one hears you versus you're like, screen left, screen left. Um, that that makes a difference in the same way that if it needs to be long before the screen happens, you know, if, if you yell out screen left or flat or ice, whatever our call is going to be, and you don't say it until the guards already turn the corner and shot the ball, you know, it kind of doesn't really matter. And and then we always kind of add on the end of that of, you know, and then true toughness is, is that the reality is that that win part is usually all of the time or, you know, our, our, our theme this year is consistency. And, um, you know, so that's how we define it of just, you know, it's doing over and over again what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, when it needs to be done. And, it, and if any of those three are, are not taking place, then then it's a choice you're making. And, and in that moment, you're choosing not to do what's tough. I love that. So I made a lot of mistakes. I've, I've talked about it on the podcast and recruiting. Part of it was just not dialed in and a lack of work ethic. And, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, being good at everything and what you learned in your division one experience. But the times that I was dialed in recruiting in the area, everywhere I was at, you were at. And, and I know <laughs> and I know you were at a lot more places than I was, my friend. So you've mentioned to me, you know, a lot of the gyms, like, you know, just the prop, like, you know, it's 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 challenging, obviously, because you're recruiting guys that, you know, it seems like every guy wants to play the next level. But how do yeah. you recruit at your level? Like how you know, you you've had some really, really good players and you've obviously developed some really good players but what are some keys or just you know things that you really work at to to carve your niche and be able to recruit at concordia yeah you know i've some some different even some other division one coaching friends of mine have asked that and i I kind of will use a phrase that it's exactly the same but it's totally different and uh the parts that are exactly the same are it's it's still about relationships and and that's whether that's getting to know you know high school coaches in the area or aau coaches so that you you can call someone up hey you have a guy we're looking for, or even better when sometimes they call you up and say, Hey, I, I got a kid I think would really fit your program and the way you guys play. It's developing relationship and, and building a connection and rapport with the kid that you're recruiting, their family, you know, the people around them and trying to demonstrate why, why Concordia, you know, in this particular case is a good fit for them. And, you know, so I think all those things are exactly the same. What's really different at our level is, you know, there, there's like when I was at Longwood, the likelihood that someone would choose Longwood over, say, North Carolina was extremely low. But on the pure surface level of it, of what we could offer that athlete in terms of how much it would cost for them to go to school was identical. Now, there were a whole lot of other perks and and, uh, and obviously the coaching staff in North Carolina was a little bit better than coaching staff at Longwood and things like that. But on just that pure financial, like, okay, coach, you, you, you're offering the chance to play college basketball. What would it cost me to go to Longwood versus go to North Carolina? You know, those are those are pretty 
pretty comparable, if not identical. And, and at our level in particular with the NAI, I mean, it's, it's wildly different. I mean, you have programs that are really competing for national championships and have unbelievable, you know, funding and resources and, and they're giving complete full rides, you know, pretty much the same as a, as a division one school is. And then you have schools that, you know, we're not that far down, but you have some schools where there's no athletic aid whatsoever. And it's, it's really kind of like division three. And so, you know, that's one of those unique things where every once in a while you have a school like a Gonzaga that is, uh, is just playing on a completely different recruiting landscape, maybe than everybody else in, in their conference. But I think for the most part, you know, if it's in the horizon or the Mac, or like when I was in the big South, yes, there's a pecking order, but it's not, you know, a drastic difference where like within our league, I mean, there's, there's a pretty drastic difference of what we can be up against at time from a purely financial standpoint. And so I think, you know, the thing for us when it, when it comes to recruiting is, you know, we've, we've just really got to find some guys that are either misevaluated or under recruited, or maybe they, uh, they're outside the state. So they're in an area where maybe there's not a lot of NAI schools and, and maybe they're a little bit above the division three level, but there's just not very many division two or NAI schools around to, to offer them some some scholarship money. And so again, there's, there's a lot that is the same, um, but there's definitely some things that are different. And I think the thing that, you know, again, if I'm at Concordia forever, I would love that. But if I would ever, you know, end up being somewhere else, I think the thing that I've definitely learned here is that it probably took me way too long to find some of those subtle differences of like, Hey, uh, Cornerstone is recruiting that kid. You, you may not be able to recruit them and in your ego of thinking you could out recruit or outvote a relationship or whatever else, you, you may need to try to do this a different way and figure out what type of kids will fit best at Concordia. And again, I think that took a little too long for me, but I'm happy that, you know, I think we figured it out because we've got some really good players right now and we've got a couple of special very young players and, and some other other you know high school kids that I think are getting close to making a decision. And so it took some time to find a niche, but but I think we've you know we've done that well now over the last couple of years. You know, you mentioned relationships. One of the things that just is incredible is your team camp. I think you had almost 50, 55, you know, teams this past season. And I know we're coming off COVID and all the kids were ready to go and ready to play. But it's pretty incredible when you, you know, think of AAU and landscape of how we recruit that you have such a um, a massive you know chance for so many kids and coaches to come visit your campus. Yeah, the the team camp has been great for us. I mean, we we usually get a couple of kids each year that have come there and and it was funny like the first, you know, the first I got hired, I came up here and basically the first thing that the camp the, the first two things that came across my desk where I found out we were probably going to play Michigan in my first game and it was like, wow, this is awesome, you know, nice guarantee check and chance to play team that had just gone to, you know, national uh the national finals. And then the second thing that came across my desk is, Hey, you have a, uh, we have a team camp that had kind of been started by the previous coaching staff. You've got like seven or eight teams committed. It's coming up in about two weeks. You got to figure all this out. And so I really didn't know what I was doing, try to put it all together. And again, as I mentioned, like me being a really big planner. So I kind of went through, it's like, okay, we said, we're giving everybody t-shirts. Here's how much the t-shirts cost. We said, we're doing refs. Here's a ref, you know, went through. And it, you know, when, when, when everything kind of checked out, I think I think they were charging like a hundred bucks per team, and it was going to cost us about one hundred and seventy dollars per team mm. to run the camp. And I'm like, great. I'm like, the first thing I'm faced with making a decision here is we're either going to run a camp at about a thousand dollar loss, <laughs> or or even maybe worse, the first interaction with any coaches in the state of Michigan I'm going to have is calling up seven high school coaches and saying, hey, I know you're supposed to come to our team camp next week, but I'm the new coach and I'm canceling it. And so exactly kind of what you said on that recruiting side of it, I, I kind of quickly just kind of changed my look on it. it was like, hey, you know what, like maybe we don't need to make any money on the team camp. And if I go out to Grand Rapids and stay the night in a hotel and pay for the AAU coaching packet and all that, we're going to we're going to spend seven or eight hundred bucks out there to do that. So if we do spend seven or eight hundred bucks or a thousand bucks to just recruit in general, that's not that bad of a, a cost. And we're going to have, as you mentioned, hundreds of kids on our campus learning about our program, playing in our gym, us getting to see them, you know, really up close. Like that actually doesn't sound like such a terrible thing. And uh, so then, you know, moving forward, we, you know, my goal always was, and I think it's why we've had as many uh, teams as we did, as, as you mentioned, is, you know, we basically run our team camp at cost. You know, every year I go through, here's what it's going to cost for, you know, paying some table workers. Here's what's going to cost for referees, for t-shirts, all the different things we provide as part of our camp. And if that number turns out to be, you know, 190 bucks, then, you know, we do it for 200 bucks to, to cover maybe a team kind of bailing at the last minute, and not paying. But yeah, in the, you know, in the nine years, I guess we've done it, you know, I bet 
cumulatively we've made less than a thousand bucks on it, five thousand, you know, two thousand bucks on it, something like that. But we've, you know, we've had several all conference players and, and starters and, and four year players for us that, that we first saw come to our camp. So been a great great tool for us and, and a way to just provide some great opportunities for kids to play at a, at a really low cost for their school your personal twitter page is really really powerful without getting into the tweets and i and i've been reading them the last couple days you're an open-minded person who cares deeply about the rights of all men and women how did you become so open-minded and how are you so fearless to post your feelings yeah i think you know, I think a lot of this, it really kind of comes back to that word I said, that just really means a lot to me of integrity. And, you know, it kind of said as defining of just doing what's right when it comes to both sides of that, the, the I guess, the open-mindedness or, or just being really passionate about, you know, speaking out about equality for everyone, you know, regardless of your, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, you know, whatever it is, I just think that's, that's what's right. And I think, you know, I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, of the, of the podcast that, uh, you know, my, my coach definitely changed my life and I've you know, mentioned things with West Virginia, but you know, the, I think the short version of that is, is that, you know, where I grew up at, I, I lived in West Virginia, um, but I was about 40 minutes, 45 minutes from Pittsburgh, like a, you know, relatively major city pretty diverse and everything and especially playing basketball you know you, you meet people of all different walks of life and you know so I was at a very young age exposed to and around you know like privilege wasn't you know wasn't a word in our you know, vocabulary back then but I just you know I, I didn't know what it was I didn't know how to define it but I would just very often find myself in spaces where people would say things that I knew, you know, they, they would say around me or, or, or other people that looked like me that they just would never dream of saying around other people that, that didn't look like them. And, and again, I didn't, I didn't have the words for that back then, but it was just something that just always, for whatever the reason was, I think the way, you know, my, my parents were really open-minded people and, you know, there were, you know, that was from, from a very young age, just instilled of like, you know, my, my dad grew up on a farm in West Virginia. And I think in some ways, you, you know, a lot of times you picture maybe farmers and, and, you know, Southern states and, and you, you probably picture somebody with a different outlook on life. But I think because of, you know, the way my dad grew up, he grew up with a lot of people probably looking down at him and thinking differently of him. And, you know, so that, that was something that was always, you know, just instilled in us to, you know, you, you never, look differently at anybody for any reason and you know you you get to know them for who they are and so i think at a you know again a young age just seeing some of that stuff and then you know again the, the game of basketball just affords you like a lot of things and so you know being in on it in one moment in time this really you know when you're a kid in west virginia the world feels really small and, and you you don't know kind of what all is out there. And then as I had a chance to leave and play in different countries and meet people in different countries and everything else, I think the thing that I was just continually reaffirmed with was, man, I meet people that speak different languages, that look different. You know, I, you know, well, women basketball coaches that are, you know, tremendous minds. And I think I was just exposed to so many people from so many different walks of life that, you know, I really valued what they had to say and, and, and found value in, in the way they lived their lives that, you know, that, that was a foundational piece. And then I, you know, I know this is something that you know, probably definitely resonates and, and hits home with you as well, that, you know, my, my wife is half Asian. And uh, I think I've put some different tweets out there like that at, at points in time where like, you know, my, my kids, um, are, you know, biracial and, but they look white. And so some of those same things that I heard growing up, I know they're going to be exposed to and hear. And instead of it just being like, man, that's the wrong thing to say. It's like, now they're, they're actually talking about me or my family, my mom, my parents, you know, my cousins, aunts, uncles, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, so I just, I try to whatever I'm, you know, putting out, whether that's in real life or, you know, especially on social media, I, I just try to put out, like, I just try to do what is right. And if, you know, whatever tiny little platform that I have with, you know, a few thousand Twitter followers and whoever, you know, probably far fewer, fewer people than that, or even, you know, listening or reading to what it is I have to say, if, you know, if I can use my voice to lift someone else up, um, you know, I, I, I want to do that. It, it's, it's like four or five years ago, I listened to a podcast. I'm blanking on the guy's name right now, but he, he was like one of the first eight or 10 employees at, at, uh, at Facebook. You know, tech guy has, has just been involved with all these Fortune 500 companies and stuff. And, and the interviewer kind of asked him about his mission statement and, you know, what, what he, what he values in life. And he was like, you know, the thing I want to do every day is I just try to be the best part of somebody else's day. And, and I thought that was such a 
cool way to try to live life. And, you know, I fall short of that certainly every day. But, you know, again, what, what you know, if I'm going to put something out there in Twitter, not to be uh, naive enough to think that my tweet is the best part of anyone's day. I sure hope it isn't. But kind of building off of that, of that mindset a little bit of if there's something I can do to, you know, maybe speak a little bit of change or, or lift somebody else's circumstance up, make it a little bit easier for the next person to open their voice. You know, that that's something that I just feel necessary to do. You mentioned your family and you consider yourself a girl dad. How do you balance being a head coach and assistant AD for facilities and still make your family such a major priority? You know, of all, all the great questions tonight, I think this one is uh, this one's probably the easiest one for me is that, you know, my and again, I, I know I'm not alone in this, that, that a lot of coaches have, have had a similar thing. But, you know, my my wife sacrificed a, a ton, you know, for me to be able to chase my dream to, to try to be a college coach. And, you know, I think and I mentioned earlier, you know, we talked about some different things I, I learned from coaches and being prepared, but probably the best lesson that I ever learned for anyone. And, and again, kind of like when some of the things my high school coach wasn't really trying to teach a lesson, you just you just learn it from being around them was was being around Eric Conkle, uh, who was an assistant coach at George Mason the year that I was there. And, you know, he's now the head coach at Louisiana Tech and to, you know, try to make his story really really short and succinct you know he, he played division three basketball so similar to me he was you know a small college player didn't grow up you know wasn't wasn't a, a highly recruited guy playing division one or anything like that and he spent a couple of years bouncing around you know like we all do trying to trying to move up the ladder and he finally gets on the staff at, at george mason as a as a division one assistant and he's there with coach l for like three years and uh his wife you know he, he kind of made a promise to her of like hey all these things you're doing for me if there's a if there's a time that presents itself where it's my turn to follow you like i I'll do that. She, I believe it was a, like a physical therapy program and uh, back, back where they were, you know, near where they were from in Minnesota. So he left, you know, he, he left and became a high school coach, high school assistant coach. You know, so he goes from being a division one assistant at George Mason. And it turned out to be the year George Mason went to the final four, you know, so that year he was going to be an assistant coach on a, on a program that ends up going to the final four. And, and he left to support his wife and, uh, and, and be a high school assistant coach for, I think it was like two years. And mm-hmm. then her program finished up and, and the the way things sometimes just work out when you do the right thing. And, as, and part of it was probably from the success of the Final Four. A lot of Coach L's assistants got some some bigger opportunities. And so he was able to rejoin the staff at George Mason. And, you know, I, mean, I, I think he had you know, kind of said at the time, he was like, he hoped that would work out. But he was like, I was, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware of like, hey, I've been a Division Three guy, had only been coaching Division One for two or three years. Like when I walk away and do this, I, I may never coach, you know, Division One basketball again. I may never coach in college again. And um, unfortunately for him, uh, that that, that worked out, and, and then he you know went to went to uh, Miami with with Coach L, and and, uh, and and now is the head coach at Louisiana Tech. So you know doing doing the right thing worked out for for him you know really really well. But you know being around him and, and kind of knowing uh, you know knowing that part of his story you know was something that I just I always wanted to make sure I you know I recognized and appreciated that you know there's going to be a lot of times as, as we all know where our lives and our families sacrifice time and especially like our kids. I mean like right now my daughters uh, they don't really get a say in it they're not choosing or you know uh, wanting to to not have their dad home on game nights and practice nights and all that but you know they sacrifice so much so you know for me they, they are a priority and so I, I need to you know action speak louder than words so if, you know, if we've got an eight eight o'clock at night practice and I've been at the office all day like I'll I'll leave at 4 30 pick the girls up from daycare be at home with them for an hour or something eat dinner and, and then drive back across town to you know to go to practice and so I'm just constantly trying to steal those moments the same way in you know basketball you're trying to get an offensive rebound or force a turnover and steal possessions you know I'm, I'm constantly trying to steal time with my family uh whenever I can get it uh because again they've you know they've they've sacrificed so much for me that you know I, I think I'd have a hard time talking to our guys about being a great you know trying to help you be be prepared to be a great husband and great father if, if you know whether or not I am a great husband or father at least at least trying to make the best effort to be one that I can what are some simple tips for young coaches? Yeah, I think the the couple that that come to mind, you know, are uh, and, and this first one's probably a little different, but you know, it, it kind of goes with just I think understanding the responsibility we have as coaches. Like it was probably two months into when I was a head coach, I had a player come into my office, uh, starts crying, and tells me that his grandfather died. He was really close to him, and he didn't know where else to go because you know he was like three hours away from home, and and I was again I mentioned before how unprepared I was for things like timeouts and other things I was I was wholly unprepared for just the you know the reality of the way your players see you sometimes maybe even when you don't that you know they're going to go through these life-changing events and 
you are a much bigger part of their life than, than sometimes you probably realize or, or think you are. And so I probably not as much of a tangible advice one, but that that's one that just kind of when you said that just now just really jumped out of just knowing that that influence and impact you have on, on guys and, and to be, you know, if you're a young coach to be prepared to uh, have things like that happen at all times, the, the one or two that are more, you know, I guess more tangible and, and advice driven is, and, it, and it's probably the biggest regret I have. I know you mentioned some of yours from a you know, recruiting standpoint, but is to do it, you know, to do the best job you can of learning from the staff that you're on. You know, I, I spent, again, I mentioned earlier, I spent a year working for, for a guy that, that became the Division One National Coach of the Year with, you know, uh, Coach Laranega. And that, you know, looking back on it, I didn't know I'd be there for a year. In my mind, I thought, you know, you're volunteer video coordinator, like you're not going to get another job very soon. You're going to be here a couple of years. Like you'll, you know, you'll pick up a ton of stuff. And eight months later, I was out of there. And, and it's like, man, I, I got to spend that much time in this type of program. And, and I picked up some things, but there's so much that I probably didn't learn that, that I could have or should have. And, and I think we all are, you know, sometimes so focused on which coaching clinic can you go to, which convention, which podcast, which coaching DVD, uh, all of those things. But, you know, to really, really maximize the ability to learn from the coaches that are on the staff you're on. And then the other one that really goes hand in hand with that is I think I got very lucky in this, in this uh, regard. This wasn't something I did, but it, I think more, more young coaches should be worried about who you work for and with and, and less about the level that you're going to be at. You know, I think if, if you can be, whether that's at a division three or a low major division one or wherever it is, there are, as you mentioned in the WAC, if, if you're with a, just a great coach, both basketball wise and, and who they are as a person. And, and there's some great assistance on staff and everything else that kind of what I mentioned about what you can learn from the staff that you're on, that can be way more important than just being at the you know quote unquote highest level that you can get a coaching at coaching job at when you're starting out and um, because those as we all know you know every coaching job that I had is a direct result from from the year I spent at George Mason I, I've not got a single job in this business that wasn't a direct relationship as a result from from being at George Mason and, and working for Coach L and that's that's kind of like a great example where I could have maybe gone to a higher level but if it wasn't somebody that. Um, was as good of a coach and also just valued trying to help other coaches on their staff the way that Coach L does, that higher level might not have been nearly as beneficial for me as, as just being around the right right people and coaches. So funny how these podcasts go. I always mention 30 minutes. We always go for an hour. <laughs> so, but I've been really, really impressed and I wanted to continue to ask questions. And I just had a, I was actually, I'm actually texting one of your assistants, Kevin Hickey, and oh, okay. I'm just like, man. Yeah. Man, this is so good. He's like, he's like texting. He's like, oh, this is every day. So you've just been incredible. This is an, again, another, you know, I started this with the mindset of coaches can coach no matter what level, no matter what gender, no matter what. And just another great example of, of, a, of a coach that can coach. And Ricky, your thoughts are so well organized. I'm truly, truly, when I when I reflect about the podcast and I've just been writing notes, I'm really glad that you chose coaching as your profession. And I applaud you for being such a rock solid person. And I really believe and trust me that I think you are making impact with your players. I just want to thank you for your time and making such an impact with young coaches today. Thank you, Drew. I mean, I know, I know probably pretty much every guest, certainly ones I've listened to have, have echoed this sentiment, but I mean, yeah, I think it's awesome. Awesome what you've been doing and, you know, going back several years, I'd be like, man, yeah, it'd be awesome. Have a podcast, talk with a lot of coaches. Kind of like I mentioned, wanting to get into coaching of like that. Nothing sounds better than that than being able to talk to coaches and pick their brain and learn stories and all that. And, you know, as you mentioned with some of the other time come in when every, it's like, man, I don't know how I do that. So the, the, your ability to, I know, I know how important, you know, your, your son and uh, your family is in your life. And, and I know, you know, the responsibilities you have with, with your coaching job now. So the, you know, the, however you're doing it to find the time to, you know, connect with all these coaches. I know I speak for a ton of people where I'm listening to almost every one of them. And, and it's, it's awesome to be able to learn so much. And, and again, it's like in a selfish way, I feel like I'm kind of living that through you where it's like, man, in my mind, I thought I'd have to do all the work and ask all the questions and do, do preparation and try to track guests down and do all this other stuff. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm committed enough to do that. And then, you know, yours comes along. It's like, oh, this is even better. I'll just kind of ride the coattails and, and listen to all the great wisdom that uh, the Tro's bringing on. So, yeah, I, lo I love what you're doing. And, and I'm honored that you asked me to be on. That was a great conversation with Coach Ricky Yon. 
I thought that Coach Yon was so darn good. Here are some of my favorite things that Coach Yon said on his high school winning year after year. Success breeds success. On practice planning, what do we need to do to win the next game? How about his relationship with his assistant coach, Randy Swoverlin? His coach, so good. On timeouts, what do we need to do next? On his defensive philosophy, convert, contain, contest, and rebound. On roles, champion your role and never settle. On integrity, do what is right when nobody is watching. On toughness, what, how, and when? How about his team camp? Run the camp at cost. How about this comment? Just try to be the best part of someone else's day. And my favorite, learn from the staffs that you are on. Truly, some incredible advice for young coaches. Thank you, Coach Ricky Yon, for sharing your story. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening. And we are everywhere. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Stay safe, be you, keep coaching, and see you on the next episode of the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast.